0: When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them through his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did air such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We thank God for the words from Isaac Watts to remind us to survey the cross. And that is our goal tonight, to sit and contemplate the cross. You see, Jesus came down from heaven. He left his glory. He led a sinless life. And that's no story. He was born of a virgin. Mary was her name. He made the blind to see and then he healed the lame. He preached in Bethlehem to Jerusalem's border. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. Jesus did much more. The Bible has it all. His apostles wrote it down, and the book is not dull. Because Paul revelated, Christ was humiliated. Today, Christ lives. He's not outdated. Jesus said that he was God, but nobody believed. That's why they crucified him and made him bleed. They mocked him and beat him, just like you heard. And Jesus Christ, my Lord, never said one word. Because he knew he had to die so that we could live. And the life of God is what he did give. They nailed him to the cross by his hands and his feet. For six hours he hung, nothing to drink or eat. They plucked out his beard. They gave him a thorn crown, and from that cross, Jesus would not come down. He could have freed himself anytime he liked, but he stayed up on the cross and didn't put up a fight. Because if Christ came off the cross, we would all be lost. We would go straight to hell, where the devil's the boss. But since he did not come down, we all have a choice. To accept him or reject him. Speak up. You have a voice. Because Christ will be rewarded and hell cannot be afforded. Because Christ endured it and his blood ensured it. I said his blood ensured it. Behind me is a wondrous cross. With a black piece of fabric draped on it. Reminding us what Good Friday was all about. Good for us. Horrific for Jesus. As he took the cup of suffering that he would not allow to pass. He drank it all. Suffering for us. Taking our penalty for our sins on his body. He was cursed on the tree so that you and I can be blessed. What a great exchange. And when we contemplate Good Friday, it is both a heavy thought to consider and a hopeful thought to consider. It's heavy because we think of the fact that an innocent man died for guilty people. It's heavy when we think about the excruciating pain that the Lord went through. He was man enough to suffer, to bleed, and to die. But on Sunday, that that, that black flap is going to be exchanged with a white one. Speaking, Speaking of the fact that he rose again from the grave, and we are now adopted sons and daughters of the living God. And we've been forgiven of all of our sins because of his blood. But today, it's good for us to sit in the suffering of Friday. It's good for us to also sit in the silence of Saturday. Because everything was silent as his body was in the grave. But on Sunday, we won't sit. We will rejoice. Now, tonight, God has raised up seven servants who are going to come and share one of the seven sayings that Jesus uttered on the cross. As I mentioned, for six hours, he hung. And before he even got on the cross, he kept his mouth shut when he was falsely accused. And they brought people in with drummed up charges. And they were amazed that Jesus did not seek to defend himself, but as a lamb being led to the slaughter, so he did not open his mouth. But when he did open his mouth, Bible records seven statements that he made during that six-hour time of hanging and suffering and bleeding for us. And tonight we have men and women who are going to come and expound briefly on each one of those sayings. Brother Chris Visman is going to share from Luke 23 verse 34, Father forgive them for they do not know what they do. Following Chris, Brother Jermaine, Soto is going to come and expound upon Luke 23, verse 43, where Jesus said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. And then Nancy French will come and she will share from John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, when Jesus said, Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. And then Marlon Turner will come. And share from Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll all sing another hymn together about the greatness of God's mercy. And then Sister Kim Freeman will come and share from John 19:28, I thirst. And then Michelle Sellers will come and share from John 19, verse 30. It is finished. And then finally, Brother Dennis Allen will come and share from Luke 23, verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. After each presenter shares, they're going to put out one light here. There are seven candles, one for each statement. We're going to be working our way through this worship service to the final candle. Because it's going to signify the fact that when Jesus died and hung on the cross, the Bible says that the earth went dark. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 says, now from the sixth hour, which is 12 noon, until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock, there was darkness over all the land. They put him on the cross at nine o'clock a.m., western time, But from 12 to 3, it was dark. So we will move towards darkness as we again try to travel back in our mind what that day might have been like. And when Dennis concludes and he snuffs out the final candle, the sanctuary is going to go dark. It's going to go dark. Where we will sit in somber remembrance as the worship team sings one final song in the dark. Once that song is concluded, we will all exit the sanctuary in silence. In silence. Contemplative silence. And I ask you not to talk until you get to your car. Can you do that for us? Amen. Let's enter in tonight as best we can with the help of the Holy Spirit, who's the first fruits of our inheritance. May he be the one to give us a taste tonight of glory of what Jesus endured and went through for each and every one of us. So at this time, we'll begin with our first speaker, Brother Chris Bisman.
1: So the verse I want to talk with you about today comes from Luke 23, verse 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So some context around that. Herod, the appointed ruler of the area, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, had just questioned Jesus. Okay? And they, they found him innocent of all the crimes that all the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jewish people accused him of. But in spite of this, he decided to execute Jesus and let Barabbas go free. Now Barabbas was a well-known criminal and someone who was guilty of committing murder during an insurrection. Now the irony was, is that the Jewish leaders were falsely accusing Jesus of crimes against Rome, right? King of the Jews. Now Jesus never said he was king of the Jews, but that's what their accusations are. So he decided to let Barabbas go free who was actually guilty of inciting the people of Rome. So he decided to crucify him and the only, and of course that crimes against Rome was the only justification for crucif- crucifixion. So prior to being crucified Jesus was flogged in a way that likely ripped most of the skin from his back and his ribs. He was hung up on a cross Uh, at a place called the skull where he had to carry his own cross all the way to the skull. We know from Pastor Chris, he had a little help along the way, but he had to carry that cross with his back ripped open. And so they nailed him up there, hanging between two thieves, with a crown of thorns mashed into his skull. He was fully man and fully God, so we know he was in excruciating pain. People were mocking him, soldiers were taunting him. But amid this pain and persecution, he spoke to his father and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why did he say this? Well, those who know me can attest that uh, I'm a very passionate and empathetic person. Uh, however, these strengths, if you will, can some, sometimes be weaknesses. My family may also characterize me as overly reactive when I get triggered by something I'm very passionate about or some, when I see an injustice. Yeah. So I can lose my temper and not, not a good way. So in the 70s, there was this show called Scared Straight, okay? Some of you remember that. It had a major impact on me. Uh, what they did is they brought teens who'd been in trouble, And they brought them into a maximum security prison with prisoners who were basically lifers. They had nothing to lose. And they got in these kids' face, and they cussed at them, and they basically threatened them. And they told them all of the worst things you could imagine about a prison in the 70s. Well, ever since that time, my biggest fear in life has been incarceration. I promise you that. Okay? So what does all this have to do with the verse? As a father, I've always seen car- incarcerations a possibility because I knew I would come unhinged if someone deliberately harm one of my kids. Yeah. Can I have a show sure hands of everyone who's seen the movie or read the book, A Time to Kill? Has everybody seen that? Yeah. As parents, and especially as fathers, It's easy easy to put ourselves in the shoes of Carl Lee, right? Wanting to make the men who horrendously abused his daughter pay for what they did. If somebody did something like that to your child, and you had the ability to do something about it, it would be hard not to. So what does all this have to do with it? Well, Jesus was God's only son. And although the plan from the start... Was that Jesus would become a human sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. It doesn't mean God wouldn't judge severely those who abused and killed his son. Jesus was asking his father to forgive these people the soldiers, the Pharisees, the governors, the government, the bystanders, because they couldn't possibly understand the gravity and the magnitude of what they are part of. See, unlike Peter, It hadn't been revealed to most of this crowd that Jesus was the Son of God. If we consider our part, our sin, as part of this story, we realize that we're just as guilty as the people in this crowd. Our sins were covered by the humiliation and crucifixion of Jesus, the only perfect lamb. This statement from Jesus speaks to his character and the heart of Jesus as a compassionate an empathetic protector of us. As you ponder Easter and the resurrection, consider the magnitude of God's love for us. God doesn't love you or me because it's something we did or didn't do, He loves us because of something He did. He doesn't want us to repay Him because we can't. What He wants is your heart, your faith in Him and to live a life of gratitude and service. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you. All
2: right, I'm not going to mess with that. I'm sorry. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23:43. During a moment of pain and suffering, what an empowering gift these words represent. The gift for our saving faith, sweet music for our souls, a wonderful promise in the midst of a broken, painful world, highlighting the ultimate and emotionally overwhelming sacrifice Jesus crucified for our sins. To be with Christ in paradise, wow. And reflecting on this verse, I kept asking myself this question, what paths do we take towards this moment when we are with Christ in paradise? I reflected on what we, what I expect of the Lord while on earth, and whether I selfishly try to take this generous gift without repentance, with muted faith. And in reflecting, I keep coming back to the two thieves being crucified at the same time as Jesus, their expectations of the Lord, and the path one took that resulted in this verse. The first thief, as John Piper shares, quote, had no spirit of brokenness or guilt or penitence or humility. He can only see Jesus as a possible power by which to escape the cross, end quote. He was nailed to a cross, and he wanted it out. And he, as scripture said, railed at him, Jesus, saying, Are you not Christ? Save yourself and us, Luke 23, 39. Yes, perhaps mocking Jesus, perhaps saying, prove yourself. And as a few writings online mention, thinking, Hey, if this Jesus guy pulls this off, then I will be free. Of this mess as well this interaction made me think of seeking shortcuts to get out of something we had a part in and gain the rewards on our own time for our own benefit in ways we try to characterize Jesus to get us out of the hard times the despair and immediately into paradise I feel like a lot of us want Jesus to be the Marvel superhero to be the genie in Aladdin we want to snap our fingers and say, Jesus, prove it. Prove good overcomes evil. I admit I struggled with this, especially recently. Here we are in the midst of a world where it feels as if atrocities are endless. Evil is rampant. Hate is everywhere. I just want the peace. Where's the peace, Lord? I want to see some glimpse of that paradise in the midst of all this chaos. Last night, as Mona and I discussed the recent suffering in the world, Lamenting on the hurt and pain, lamenting on the hurt and pain, worried for her brother, a missionary in Lebanon. Lebanon, not Lebanon. Mona exclaimed, Lord, come soon. This world is ready. A lot of us say some version of this. Come now, Lord. Fix it. Fix this. Remove the hurt. Ease the pain. Show us your majesty. Show us your power. If I can visualize what this looks like for me, it's a booming voice splitting the skies for all the world to hear. Enough. Or these big hands coming out of the sky, pulling us off one another, much like I do with my dogs when they're fighting, and flicking away all their weapons of destruction, forcing fists to unclench, flicking all the bad people into the ocean or something. Just like, flick, get out of here. The Old Testament God, right? Now, don't wipe out the earth or anything, Lord, but do something to stop all this. Intervene just enough to bring about a peaceful state, an emotionally easy existence. Is that too much to ask? Clean up this mess all these other people made on our terms. Then there's the second thief in the same predicament. The one we all know cries out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke 23, 42. And the one to which the Lord responds with the saying we focus on tonight. Some may read this interaction and wonder if he too is is taking a shortcut towards freedom from his situation. Waiting until the last minute to express some sort of faith and hope the man named Jesus next to him is truly Christ. Reminds me of my children when Mona shares her work facilitating conversations with men on death row and shares how some of these men have found Jesus and are born again. And our kids are incredulous, right? Asking about the strength of their faith after committing horrible acts and on the cusp of death. Many writers discuss this as a model path with the second thief while um, on the cross, a righteous faith walk towards the gift of paradise. How the second thief was not sucked in by the people around him. He did not listen to or join in on the noise all around, admonishing God for not fixing this now or getting, of, getting them out of the situation now or proving his power now. He fears God. God is in charge, not him, not us. It's on his time. He admits his sin. We want to claim our faith, judge others, call on Christ's power and want immediate results, yet we sometimes, we oftentimes skip the humbling act of admitting our sin. We can't hide from it second thief acknowledges the righteousness of Christ, that Jesus is king. Who do we worship? If we say we worship Christ, do we do it because we expect something in return? Or do it in the moment to fulfill an immediate need? Or do we praise the Lord for his glory, celebrate that his ultimate sacrifice was for us, is a gift, is a promise of ever- everlasting life? And finally, the second thief pleads for help. He's repentant, comes before the Lord bare, in all his brokenness. Please, Lord, remember me. These two thieves juxtaposed shows that, where it, that there is, as John Piper again mentions, quote, an infinite qualitative difference between save me, as the first thief approaches it, and save me, as the second thief does. Is it lip service with no real love for Christ trying to scan passage into heaven? Or is it, quote, a genuine, a genuine moment of self-reflection and true sorrow for sin accompanied by real faith, good to the last millisecond of life? Ralph Wilson says the difference between some sort of faith and saving faith is true repentance and the commitment to Christ that repentance implies. So before all of you here tonight, let me not hide, shun all aspects of the world, not succumb to the pain of the world. Let me not seek the Lord for a quick fix, for a shortcut. Let me not judge others for their sins and conveniently ignore my own. Let me humbly kneel before the cross, a flawed yet faithful son of God, and rejoice for the Lord in his infinite wisdom and his love for his children allowed his son Jesus to physically suffer and die and rise again so that one day I, we, can triumphantly be with him in paradise.
3: On November 22nd, 2007, my husband David went to war. He flew into the eastern Diyala Province, Iraq, with the 2nd Armored, 2nd Squadron, 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment. David was an attorney. He joined the army after 9-11, and I thought the army would use his legal skills in a green zone. But he was sent into the teeth of the Iraqi insurgency. On that day, David left He stood on the tarmac as two Chinook helicopters came out of the sky. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning. He could barely carry his weapon, his body armor, his backpack, his duffel bag, but he took the position behind one of the gunners. Being a lawyer, he'd never been in a helicopter before, and the noise thundered even through his ear protection. They flew across the Iraqi countryside low and fast and he could see fires burning from distant firefights at that moment he prayed he asked god for some assurance a sense of peace maybe that he'd come home that he'd see his family again but he felt no peace he felt no assurance it was like god wasn't there or if he was there he wasn't listening for a year david lived within sight of the iranian border He went outside the wire. Previously, al-Qaeda terrorists were processed by JAG officers in green zones, but his commander decided it would be more effective to process the terrorist at the point of capture. And so it was dangerous work. Between early February and early April 2008, David's small squadron suffered about 20% of the total American casualties, He survived the war and eventually came home, but many of his friends didn't, and his faith took a hit. It was like God was silent during his most extreme moment of need. Mary's most extreme moment of need is here at the cross, as Jesus is dying and soldiers are gambling for his clothes. But in the hour of her son's death, she was not alone. Here's my verse. When Jesus saw his mother and John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. My whole life I assumed that Jesus was calling out to Mary saying, Look at me. Look what is happening to me. The son referring to himself. This might have been due to an old hymn we sang at church, which Loretta Lynn recorded called He Could Have Called 10,000 Angels. But I now realize that was not right. Jesus wasn't asking his mother to look at him. He was asking John to take care of this woman in a culture that did not value women. Even from the cross, he was making accommodations for his family. He was providing a family and a future and a hope. In 2010, two years after David came home from war, we adopted a baby from Ethiopia in a modern culture that does not prioritize orphans, the least of these. It was a long process involving a great deal of paperwork and preparing our home to accommodate a baby enough to satisfy the government agencies and social workers. It was like being audited by the IRS and auditioning for HGTV at the same time. <laughs> Finally, when it came time to sign the actual adoption papers, we sat in the kitchen table documents spread out before us when David gasped and I said what is it and he pointed to her birth date November 22nd 2007. Naomi was born the day David flew off to war the day he was filled with so much doubt and fear it was the moment David asked God to give him assurances of his future the day that one day he would be home with his family, but God didn't answer. At least that's what we thought. God was answering David's prayers in a way he couldn't imagine. He did not let David in on the plan, maybe because he wouldn't have believed it. But God was planning for our family and our future in a way we could have never imagined, because at that moment, On that night, somewhere in a small African village, on a continent we've never seen, our daughter was born. That's what God does. In God's economy, his death contains the grains of hope. At the cross, Jesus was making accommodations for his family. He was providing a future and a hope for Mary. And even if you feel in this moment that the world doesn't value you, even if you are one of the least of these, he is doing this for you as well. In his death, somehow, mysteriously, is your life and your hope. Behold the Son of God.
4: Historically, over and over again, prophecies about this Christ... Or proclaim through the mouth of God's messengers about the coming of the Messiah. And over and over again, Jesus fulfilled them all, every one of them. Brings to my mind when he said that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, he came to fulfill them. And he came to fulfill every one of them. He came, and when he came, he meant business in what he was doing because he never veered from his mission. In Psalms 22 and 1, King David foretold of the time when Jesus was going to exclaim outwardly what he was feeling inwardly as he hung on that cross, abandonment by his father. There are two truths that we can learn from this saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, in Arabic. Simultaneously, all at once, the justice of God was carried out on Christ while at the same time the love of God was displayed for you and me all at the same time. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to illustrate this. If you have ever watched the sun the sun come up over the, uh, the horizon, you can understand what I'm talking about. As the sun comes up on the morning horizon, just picture this in your mind. As it comes up on the morning horizon, two things happen all at once. First thing, darkness is dispelled. Second thing, the sunlight burst forth all at one time. All at once, the father turned his back on the son. And as he was turning his back on the son, the darkness of sin was dealt with by the justice of God as God was turning his back toward his son God was crushing his son on that cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 2 says that he who knew no sin became sin. And as God was turning his back on his son while he was hanging on that cross that dark day, he was crushing Christ. He was crushing, he was punishing Christ for the sins that was upon him, while at the same time, he was making it possible for the brightness of God's love to shine on you and me for all eternity. Blessed be his name. Good evening,
5: Saints. John 19, verse 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. How did Jesus fulfill prophecy by saying, I am thirsty, or I thirst. There were at least 20 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled during the 24 hours surrounding our Lord's death. When Jesus said, I thirst, or I am thirsty, in this moment, he alluded to a prophecy in Psalm twenty-two, fifteen: My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death." The Hebrew word not only describes physical thirst, but also thirst for natural things, and also of spiritual things, the things of God. We see each of these reflected in each of the three times Jesus is offered drink while on the cross. The first time is recorded in Mark 15 and 23 and says the wine was mixed with myrrh or gall. Death from crucifixion could sometimes take days. The main purpose of beating and scourging was to weaken the victim and hasten their death. This wine would have had an analgesic effect to help numb the immense pain. And since the contorted position of the victim's body on the cross induced suffocation, this drink also acted as an invitation to commit suicide, lulling the victim into ending his intense suffering by not pushing himself up to breathe. To offer it was a requirement under Roman law, Such was the pain and suffering of the victims of crucifixion that the Romans had to coin a word for it. Excruciating literally means of or out of the cross. One definition of natural is that uh, of or in agreement with the character or makeup of or Circumstances surrounding someone or something. So it seemed a natural thing that anyone suffering in that way would want to diminish as much of the pain as possible or hasten their death as quickly as possible. Jesus' commitment to submitting to and fulfilling the will of God is seen in Luke 2242, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He would not drink from the Romans' cup, but of the fathers. And with that cup came such great agony that an angel was sent to strengthen him. And he sweat drops of blood, a rare and real condition called hematidrosis. And this set the stage for severe dehydration. When the second cup is offered, it is done in jest. Luke 23:36 is the only place in scripture where this is recorded. The soldiers also mocked him coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now they're saying this to the creator of oceans and seas and rivers, the God who made water flow from a rock at any time could have commanded streams of water to come down from heaven and fill his mouth to quench his thirst. But by choice, he suffered from extreme dehydration. He could have shown them who they were mocking, (coughs) but he did not. Not one miracle Jesus performed was done to promote himself, but to meet a need, to alleviate suffering, to break the chains of bondage, and to point men and women to the Father. And in this his thirst for the things of God was greater. The third time drink is offered, it is because Jesus asks for it. It is after 3 p.m., a sponge is soaked in a pot of common wine, stuck on a branch of hyssop and brought to his mouth. According to Dr. Mark Eastman, Jesus had not drunk since the night before So the combination of beatings, the crown of thorns, and the brutal scourging would have set into motion an irreversible process of severe dehydration and cardiorespiratory failure. I remember my great-grandfather, sometimes I would see him take salt in his hand and follow that with a glass of water. And I later learned that he did this, first of all, to prevent dehydration in the hot Mississippi sun. And he also did it to make sure that there was enough food in the house for everyone. That self-sacrifice is what I see here. It was necessary that Jesus moistened his lips and his throat for the next two pronouncements, that he could say them clearly and in power. And in these, we see Jesus' humanity. The miracle of his being both God and man is at times beyond our comprehension. But Jesus did suffer and thirst physically. I am thirsty is Jesus' challenge to us not to chase after the natural things that do not and cannot satisfy. He is the only one who can satisfy our thirst now and eternally. I am thirsty is Jesus' invitation to us to develop a desire for God greater than ourselves. In our suffering, we can still experience God. I am thirsty is Jesus' encouragement for us to believe we have a God who knows, who cares, and who feels what we're going through. He chose to identify with us so that we can proclaim the words of Isaiah 53 and 5. He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment of our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so that we can also stand upon this promise in Hebrews 4 and 15. And I love this translation from the New Living Translation. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testings we do yet he did not sin. Blessed be the name of the Lord.
6: John 19 and 30 When Jesus therefore received the vinegar, he said it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Pilate, the governor of Judea, acknowledges that Jesus Christ is king, but the law, the Jews, that is, the righteous, the religious leaders, they disagree with Pilate. They challenge Pilate to choose to be a friend of Caesar, or to be a friend of Jesus. It is said that there are two very important choices you must make in life. One, is the book you choose to read, and two, the friends you choose to be in your life. You can't choose your family. I'm glad I have a friend in Jesus. <laughs> The politicians of that time demanded that the Roman soldiers kill Jesus because they couldn't allow him to work signs and miracles and wonders because that threatened their position and their place in their religious society. So they had to take Jesus out. They whipped him cutting into his flesh. They hit him with their fist in his face and body. They gave him a crown of thorns and they took his beaten body and put it in a purple robe and they mocked him. They forced him to carry his own cross to Calvary until he received help from Simon an African man from Cyrene. Jesus did that for me, and he did that for you. It is finished. What is it? I feel like that tiny word has so many reasons, but I'm just going to name a few. No more sacrifices of animals, grain, wine, or oil. It. Jesus paid it all. He paid the debt that we owed. It. He became the slaughtered lamb dying in our place. It. Jesus lived a perfect life on earth that we couldn't do. It. It is finished. And that is the fulfillment of the scriptures. The word is signifies past, present, and future. It's a very active word. Jesus did not use the word was finished, will be finished, should be finished, can be finished, might be finished. Jesus said it is finished. The word finish means the end. It's completed, defeated, utterly ruined. The final act concluded and paid in full. Our death sentence has been exonerated. We have been redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Our sin debt has been paid in full. It is finished. Fanny Crosby, a mission worker, was born in 1820, and she was known to be one of the most prolific hymn writers of all times. This is one of my favorite hymns that was written by her, and it is called Near the Cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross, there a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross, a trembling soul, love and mercy found me, there, the bright and morning star shed its beams around me. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow over me. Near the cross, I'll watch and wait, hope and trust in ever, till I reach that golden strand just Beyond the river,
2: mm-hmm.
6: till my ram, some soul shall find. O oh Lord, rest beyond the river
7: the river into your hands i commit my spirit found in luke 23:46 i want to focus on the word hands according to google in the king james version the word hands is mentioned 462 times. Hands serve a vital role in our lives and assist us in daily functions. Hands give comfort and relief in cases of injury and sickness. They provide aid and assistance in cases where money is involved. There's a company that carries the slogan, You're in Good Hands, suggesting that if you make an investment in our services, we in turn will be there for you when you need us. Hands are lifted toward heaven as a gesture of praise and worship, while at other times, wield weapons of mass destruction to take the lives of innocent children. We even place our lives in the hands of people we never met. Every day, we board means of transportation in hopes of reaching our destinations and sometimes never give thought to the possibility that maybe we will not make it. I remember on September the 11th, 2001, individuals boarded planes in hopes of making it safely to wherever they were going, only to face disaster at the hands of terrorists. At that last moment, I wonder if people raced to call loved ones for the last time, embraced and comforted one another, or even spoke Jesus' last words. In life, there are some assurances that we can trust in. But what about in death? Do you have the assurance and trust of knowing your soul will be with the Father? Jesus, at the point of his death, had the assurance and trust of knowing that his spirit was kept and would be reunited with his Father. He called upon his Father, In your hands... I commit my spirit and thus assured his spirit's destination. I am thankful that we too have assurance because of his great sacrifice for us. When I think about the hands of God, I think about the countless ways the his hands provide for us. They feed us in times of hunger. They provide shelter and comfort when storms come. They applaud our accomplishments and they draw our tears when we cry. I like to think of his hands as helping hands. They're there in times when we need it, even when we're not even expected it. Just recently, I was at Home Depot, (laughs) picking up materials for a project I was working on at my home. It was a very heavy load, and I had secured my materials on my pickup truck as best I could. With my own hands, I secured the tie-down cords as best I could. I was confident that that it would not budge as I made my way home. But as circumstances would have it, that was not the case. As I was driving, I heard a slight noise, but continued to drive on. Then I looked in my rearview mirror, and I noticed cars behind me had stopped with several cars behind it. The car started going around something, and then I knew that the noise I had heard was something that had fallen off my truck. I began to back up and noticed an older gentleman had gotten out of his car, blocking the traffic, picking up the materials and stacking them on the side of the curb. I wondered what he would say to me. Would he be angry? Would he criticize me for not securing my materials as well as I thought I had? Would he be annoyed that his destination was delayed? Of course, I was ready to blame Home Depot. But when I parked my truck and began to reload my materials with the gentleman's help, to my surprise, there was no anger, no criticism of me, and no ill will. The gentleman smiled and said, from a distance, I saw that some of your items had fallen off, and I figured you would return for them. He helped me load everything while other cars looked and went around us. Upon getting everything loaded and secured better, I thanked the gentleman for being a good Samaritan. His reply to me was, in this world, we must help one another. Then he extended his hands to me as to say, you are not alone. Continuing my, de- my destination home, I realized God extended his hands to me that day in the form of grace. They had already prepared and performed that entire rescue well before I even knew it would happen. I believe each day we should look at him and say, Father, into your hands, I'm asking you to fill in the blank because there is no better place to be. Last night on the state capitol, a lot of us witnessed A vote taking place where hands were asked to be raised to vote out two individuals who spoke out against uh, children being slaughtered. When I saw this, I was very discouraged, very discouraged. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it is in God's hands and it is in his hands and in his time that all this will be taken care of. How you may ask? Well, Jesus put it best. When you do unto others, you do unto me. For God's hands are our hands. We can take solace in knowing that we are welcomed in his hands, safe in his hands, receive grace in his hands, and most of all, loved in his hands. For brothers and sisters, There is no better place to be than in the hands of the Father."